Hopefully you've already turned to Acts 28. We are ending Acts. This will be my 54th message from Acts. We started this in May of 2017. Uh, Now, simple math tells you, wait a minute, that's more than 54 Sundays since you started. I know that. There have been a lot of holidays and other series here and there that we've interjected as we've moved through. This is it, 54 sermons uh, on this uh, book. And and it has, I, I posted on Facebook among some friends, the that I was doing it, and they asked me what, what were the highlights of doing this. And one of them was just my knowledge of Acts now. I've read it a bunch of times. I like history, so the historical narrative of Acts was always one that I love to read about. But just the, the things that I learned, the, the things I had to unlearn uh, and had to go, wait a minute, I've always thought this to be true, and it turns out I was wrong on that. Those sorts of things have been amazing. But I believe the number one amazing uh, aspect of going through Acts was that nearly every message spoke to where we were as a church at that moment. Now, my, my idea of, uh, of what I expected to get from Acts was go back to Acts, see how church is supposed to be, and take the principles from that and emulate that and become that church. We're not going to do things exactly the way they did in Acts. Uh, it, it, it was all about first church. That's what we're still talking about. This was the first church. So how do we take those principles? But over and over again, the, the things that the text brought out were not, this is how you work as a church. This is what you're supposed to do. But referenced things that were going on right here in our own congregation that didn't look like what we were going to talk about in the text, yet the text still spoke to that. I mean, there were folks that would say, surely you're manipulating this somehow. Uh, you're picking these verses. And I'm like, well, you know, three came after two. And, and, and 15 came after 14. I just went in order. And, 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 and yet God still spoke to us. That has been the most amazing thing. And this morning for me was no different. This passage at this time of our church life was absolutely no different than anything else I'd experienced. So it still amazes me, yet it shouldn't, right? But it does. Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 11. It'll be on the screen. Uh, If you'd like to use a a hard copy of God's Word, grab one of those in front of you in in the pew rack. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods as its figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. And so, or in this manner, we came to Rome. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now let's just stop there for just a second. And, and you don't have to go back, uh, Judy, just, this is fine. Uh, some things, they're back on another Alexandrian ship, same kind that wrecked, uh, 
It had the, the twin gods as its figurehead at the front. You know, you've seen the pirate ships with the dragon or the whatever, the demon face. Well, that's what this was. It was on the, the very front. And the twin gods were supposed to be the ones you prayed to for a calm sea. Well, it, those gods didn't help uh, any, uh, last time. Uh, and and so, that's, so there's some irony here that, that Luke is introducing us to. And they, they skirted up, made uh, these... Uh, uh, this path to, to Rome, path to Italy, they made it in incredible time. The tailwind they got coming out of Syracuse, uh, they took a day to make a trip that would have normally taken two days. Uh, so it's amazing how suddenly it, Paul's making a beeline to Rome after spending all this time um, in a storm and a shipwreck and such. Verse 17, After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. After they examined me, uh, they wanted to release me, since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Then they said to him, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. After arranging a day with him, many came to him in his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, Go to these people and say, You will always be listening, but never understanding. And you will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Obedience to the call. That's what we're looking at this morning. I mean, we could, I, I could, as I saw one preacher do, go back and cover all of Acts again in this last sermon. That seemed a little redundant. We're not going to do that. But we are going to jump back to the beginning just for a second. Obedience to the call, we need to understand what the call was to begin with. Luke was clear about that as was Jesus in Matthew. The, the ends of the earth was always the call. The, 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 the point of Acts was to get the gospel everywhere, the, to show, Luke was showing, how the Holy Spirit was working through his people, whether it be Peter, Paul, or any of the other disciples and the apostles, to get that gospel to the ends of the earth, just like they were told to do. First, in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
And then, just so we were clear, Luke made sure to put it at the beginning of Acts, when Jesus was, before Jesus was ascended. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This has always been the call. This has always been the purpose. Jesus lived his life, taught the disciples, prepared them, gave them everything they needed. He was crucified, he was buried, he rose from the grave. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, they had the power that they needed, and now they were ready to do what was intended all along, to share the good news of Jesus with everybody, all over everybody. That was always the call. And we get the Gentile mission. Well, when Peter preaches it in uh, the, uh, the sermon at, at, on the day of Pentecost, he foreshadows the, the call uh, to reach the Gentiles, but he uses Scripture from Joel. He, we, he could have used Scripture from Isaiah. He could have used Scripture from Genesis. He could have used any number of passages to show that the call was always to everybody, the ends of the earth, Gentiles and Jews alike, but there were a lot more Gentiles than there were Jews. And then we get to chapter 9 and we, of Acts, and we see that Paul, he himself, called specifically to the Gentiles. That was his calling. So for Paul, obedience to the call was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Always to the Jews first. We're going to see that as we get to the end of the chapter and the end of the book. But the Gentiles was his calling. Now you notice that other than explaining, uh, now let me say, let me make sure. Yep, you notice there is no more mention of Caesar except for Paul telling the Jews of Rome why he was there. We don't see the trial before Caesar. We don't hear about Caesar. They don't even name which Caesar it is. It was Nero at the time. They don't talk about that. There's no more mention of Caesar or the trial because those parts were only important to Luke's story insofar as they were a means to get Paul to Rome. That's the only reason they mattered. Caesar and, and the trial were not important to the story of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. They were only important because Paul was in Jerusalem and God used that as a way to get him to Rome. So the ends of the earth was always the call. The Gentile mission for Paul was always the call. Obedience to the call. Obedience to what call? Sharing the gospel with the entire world. But here, at this part of the story, we have now spent, uh, what is it, nine chapters? What, since chapter 19, the end of chapter 19? We have spent nine chapters getting Paul to Rome by way of Jerusalem. Rome, got to get to Rome. 1921, I must go to Rome. Uh, uh, 2113, uh, I must go to Rome. 2311, I must go to Rome. Over and over, I must go to Rome. Rome, Rome, Rome. That was the purpose. The call to Rome, though, was not for Rome. Michael, all that to get to Rome, not for Rome? Yes, Look at what Acts 28, 14, and 15 say. There, which would be a city 
on the coast where they landed 130-something miles or so from Rome. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. And so, or in this manner, we came to Rome, meaning everywhere we went, we found brothers and sisters. There were churches all over Italy. Verse 15, now the brothers and sisters from there, from Rome, had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the form of Appius, which was about 43 miles from Rome, and the three taverns, which was about 33 miles from Rome. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. What is this passage telling us about Rome? What should you immediately understand about this area? There are churches everywhere. The gospel mission to Rome has been successful. There are already believers there. We can go back to uh, 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 Priscilla and Aquila being kicked out of Rome in 49 AD. This is around 60, 61 AD, probably 60 AD. 11 years earlier, there were enough Christians in Rome to have caused enough of a problem in the synagogues that the Romans, first of all, couldn't tell the difference between a Jew and a Christian. So they expelled all the Jews, which got rid of all the Jewish Christians and probably all of the Gentile Christians as well. It was a big enough deal that 11 years earlier, Christians were getting kicked out of Rome. So there were a bunch of Christians in Rome. Paul's mission to Rome was not to reach Rome with the gospel. Rome was most likely to be a home base for work in the West, west of Italy, Spain primarily. It was not to be a point of a major point of evangelism. Certainly, Paul was going to do in that city what he had done in every city, and then what we see him do in Rome, and witness to the people there, and build that base, uh, 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 solidify the the, uh, the the believers there, and, and unify them for this mission is what we probably would have seen him do in his letter to the Romans, written while he was in Macedonia on his way to Jerusalem, now some three years earlier, uh, he wrote that one, he planned to go to Spain. That was his purpose. I, I want to come and you can help me, is the uh, implication, get ready for Spain. And in chapter 15 of Romans, he says, my purpose, my goal, what I want to do is to take the gospel where it had not been heard. That was always Paul's goal. He was always going places where the gospel wasn't. Why? That was his call. So Rome wasn't for Rome. Rome was for the West. Rome was for Spain. And he never got there. I, I, if you remember about three or four weeks ago, I said I believed uh, Paul got to Spain. Well, and then I did more research, and I, I messaged the guy on Facebook who, who convinced me otherwise and told him I wasn't happy with him, that he messed up what I'd believed for years about Paul, but his arguments were too good. They just make sense. He never got to Spain. Very likely, uh, Titus, uh, 1 Timothy were written somewhere along the path to Jerusalem, through Jerusalem. We know that... Um, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, they were written from prison in Rome. Philippians, as a matter of fact, 
was probably the last book he wrote at the end of the two years that the Bible tells us he spent under house arrest. And it's a very hopeful book. Philippians is talking about how I'm going to get out and that sort of thing and, and, and what's going to happen when I'm out. But probably what happened was the appeal to Caesar never happened because as the Jewish church, I mean, uh, rather as the Jewish leaders tell him in uh, verses 19, uh, no, verse 21, we haven't heard anything from Jerusalem. They've not said anything to us. No letters, no delegation. And probably after a couple of years, there had still been no letters, no, delega- no delegation. So with no accusation, Caesar couldn't hear anything. Never got to Caesar. And then the case was dismissed. The case was thrown out. And possibly, this is all conjecture, mind you. We don't know. Anybody tells you what happened to Paul after verse 31, it's conjecture. It may be educated conjecture, but it is conjecture. Probably what happened was the Roman Jews realized the Jerusalem Jews didn't have a case, so they built their own, and they prosecuted it, and they got him martyred at some point, probably as little as a year later after this. Right before that, he wrote 2 Timothy, his last letter. And you can read in 2 Timothy, I'm being poured out. This is it. I mean, it, 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 is, it is hopeful, but it's a definite end that he's seeing. So he probably died here in Rome. Maybe got out of house arrest, spent some time traveling around Rome, in, uh, strengthening the churches, but it didn't last long. And it forces us to... Excuse me, forces us to ask, I believe, it probably forced Paul to ask at some point, what could have been if not for those three years in and around Jerusalem? By the end of the book of Acts, it has been five years since Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Five years. Most of his missionary journeys took 18 months. He spent two years in Ephesus. How many trips could he have made to Spain, to uh, Gaul is what it would have been back then, France, to, to Europe, to Western Europe? Could he have gone further north? Could he have ended up in Great Britain? Who knows? We don't know. And speculation is difficult and oftentimes pointless and stupid. But we have to reflect on what could have been. We have to look back at the past and see what if we had obeyed back then? Where would we be now? How could God have used us if we had obeyed then? How could things be different? Spain was the western end of the earth. When Jesus said the ends of the earth, For them at that time, Spain would have been the western end of it. That was as far as they knew to go. There would have been some northern ends, but west, you only went to Spain. That's where, very likely, Jonah wanted to go. As far away as he could get. The ends of the earth. And we've got to look back and say, what could have been? It can't be changed. We can't fix what we should have done differently. But what we can do is learn from the fact 
that a great impact for the gospel may have been lost and determine not to do that again. Paul should have, and we, by Luke's narrative, can look back and say a great impact for the gospel was lost. But look what Paul does in Rome. Our church will have to look back and say what decisions should have been made sooner, earlier, in order to have the greatest impact possible for the gospel, but weren't. And then what decisions do we have to make now in order to make the greatest impact for the gospel? The final point here that we see in this passage is that we should be obedient now. Be obedient now. We see Paul doing this. Regardless of what could have been, we don't have narrative that says he was tormented by what might have been and struggled with it. Luke just doesn't give us that. He, 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 he puts two years in two verses, only showing us that Paul was doing what he should have done all along. Verse 23, after arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging. These were the Jew, Jewish leaders. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. That's what happened every time he spoke to the Jews. Some were persuaded, but many did not believe. Verses 30 and 31. Now Paul stayed two whole years, it says, in his own rented house. And he welcomed all who visited him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Regardless of what might have been, Paul is obedient now. Church, regardless of what might have been, we have to be obedient now. In these final two verses, verses 31, uh, 30 and 31, there are three verbs of obedience that we can glean some principles from. Three verbs of obedience. The first one is stayed. It says he uh, stayed in his own rental house, uh, rented house, lived in his own rented house. This, this verb is, is, is pregnant with more than just, well, he sat there and, and that's where he lived. It, it is an active, it is uh, activity with purpose and resolve. It's not just he rested on his laurels. But it is used throughout Scripture, Greek Scripture, to talk about a way of being where you are but doing something while you are there. There are other words he could have used if he was just living there. That's just where he, uh, where he slept. No, no. This is where he worked. He stayed. It was activity with purpose and resolve. First Baptist Church needs to stay right here. And I don't mean we're talking about moving. I mean we need to live in this community with activity, with purpose, and resolve to reach this community. It needs to be an active, a doing, a busy staying. We don't stay where we are. We don't rest on our laurels. We don't sit back and wait for people to walk through our doors. We have an activity and a purpose and a resolve to take the gospel to our community. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to stay right here and do what the church is called to do. This group, this church family, you. 
That's who needs to be here. Number two, the second verb of obedience is that he welcomed. He welcomed. How is that a verb of obedience? The, the implication of this, he welcomed all. Anybody could come, Jew or Gentile. It is clear from Scripture, it is clear from what went on later that he had a ministry among both. We know in the past, uh, in other places he's been, that the results of that synagogue ministry that he always uh, committed himself to right at first were conversions that translated into more conversions over time. Those other Jews would come to faith in Christ. So he welcomed them. He welcomed that conversation. We can look back at his sermons, particularly his uh, sermon at, uh, well, remember he had three sermons. He had one to, to Jews, he had one to Gentiles, and he had one to a believing church to show us what to do. We can look back at that, the, the, the sermon to the, uh, to the Jews, and we can see this is how you tell, or rather we can understand that's how he would have ministered to those people. You can look back at his sermon to the Gentiles, sermon to the Gentiles, and you can see how he would have brought in the, the Romans, the, the Greeks, the, the whatever other Gentile might have been in the area, how he would have ministered to both of them. They were all welcome to come, sit down, let's reason together about the Lord. Let me tell you, Jew, how the law of Moses and the prophets pointed to Jesus. Let me tell you, Gentile, how your own religion points to the true religion, the true faith. Let me tell you how, we would say, and some of the methods we use, how your brokenness shows your need for the Savior. He welcomed everyone. First Baptist Church must welcome everyone into our, admit, our midst. We must go out and share the gospel with them all. And we must rejoice when the person that we wouldn't expect to come into our church comes into our church. When the person that we say could never trust Jesus comes to our church to hear about the gospel because somebody invited them. The person that we would say, wait a minute, we don't let that kind of person in. What kind of person? A sinner? Then we need to all leave. No, we welcome all. The gospel is for all. The gospel says you are welcome to come hear this we pray you will respond to this, and when you do, it will not leave you where you are. We will not say your sin is not a sin in order for you to come in. What we will say is that your sin and my sin send us both to hell. The difference between you and me is I've trusted Christ, and we want you to. That is the welcoming that we need to be as a church Anyone can come. The gospel is for all. Romans 3.24 that we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning. We can all quote 3.23, all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. And J.R. asked us, how many of you can quote Romans 3.24? And we all put our hands down. I still can't. But I can do it right here. I want to read it to you. This was not in my notes. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every homosexual, every drug dealer, every prostitute, right? Those are the ones we don't want to come to our church, right? 
I mean, am I getting them all? Every liberal, every progressive, those are the ones that as long as you're not those things, you can come, right? We would say, no, Michael. Then why haven't you invited them? Maybe you have. But we would say to them, you are a sinner. And I am a sinner. We all are. And we are, and you can be, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of them. All of them. We welcome all. Then the third verb of obedience we see is proclaiming. He welcomed all who visited him. Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Paul never forgot the reason he was called. I like to assume that he replayed the Jerusalem decision over and over in his mind. I know we, I, replay the Como, Texas, and if you've not heard my testimony, you're not going to hear it this morning either. Uh, I replay the Como, Texas decision over and over in my mind. What might have been? Why? Because I know I was disobedient. Was, am I forgiven for that? Yes. Has God used me since then? Yes. But I still look back and say, Lord, I don't want to ever tell you no again. I don't ever want to end up in a place I shouldn't be because I thought I knew better than you. That's the memory of that decision. That's what I need to uh, harp on. That's what I need to dwell on. And that's what needs to never happen again in my life. I like to think Paul did that same thing. So as he sat in chains or in chain, or maybe not even that, they probably didn't think he was going to run away at this point. But as he sat in house arrest, unable to move freely about Rome, certainly unable to move freely out west, he still did the very thing he was called to do. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and uh, taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom was first mentioned in Acts 1-6, but not the way you might think. The disciples said, Lord, are you going to start your kingdom now? And he didn't say yes or no. He said, ain't none of your business. What you need to do is know that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom was mentioned by the disciples. What we understand now is that the kingdom is restored when the gospel is believed. What Jesus didn't tell them, but we now know, is yes, I'm going to restore my kingdom. You know how? You are going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And my kingdom will be restored. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. My kingdom is found in my people. My kingdom is found, found in my church. So, believers, so apostles, so disciples, you want to see my kingdom? Tell people about me, and my kingdom will grow. He preached, he proclaimed the kingdom. And that kingdom comes when people believe. And he did it, it says, with boldness and without hindrance. That should still Make us think, Paul, what could have been? You are under house arrest. You are in prison and you're able to preach with boldness and without hindrance. Imagine if you were free to preach with boldness and without hindrance. 
Imagine if you were in Spain to preach, preaching with boldness and without hindrance. First Baptist Church, imagine if we freely, with boldness and without hindrance, told people about the kingdom of God and told them about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that opportunity to move forward doing that very thing. Let us proclaim boldly the kingdom of God. This, this ending of Acts it is a, a picture, these last two verses, is a picture of the triumph of the gospel over every barrier. How many barriers? Which barriers? Every barrier. The gospel triumphs over every barrier. A virus is not a barrier. Money is not a barrier. Church decline is not a barrier. There is no barrier that can stop the gospel. And Luke, I believe, intentionally ends Acts with the gospel. Again, notice, no Caesar, no trial, no nothing about Paul, not his martyrdom, not anything. He ends with the gospel because Paul is not what is important here. It's the gospel. Flip back three pages in your Bible. What's it talking about? Doesn't matter. What's important is the gospel. Go back five chapters in Acts. What's important? The gospel. Go back to chapter 15. It's the gospel. Chapter 9, it's the gospel. Chapter 1, it's the gospel. That is the purpose of Romans, uh, rather Acts. That is the purpose of this book, to show us the gospel spread, what our requirement is in order to see people saved. That's the purpose. He would have ended with Paul, and Paul had his head cut off. But who cares? I mean, we do, because we like nice, tidy, Western endings to our stories. I mean, Western, not like... I don't mean that kind of Western. I'm talking about not Eastern. We, we want a nice, just really good, ah resolve, resolution to our story. We don't get that. Why? Because the resolution is the church still has a mandate to take the gospel. The resolution is the same as the beginning. The angels that came down after Jesus ascended and said, uh, men of Israel, what y'all doing standing around here? And they say, uh, 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 uh. Well, go tell people about Jesus. They could have ended. He didn't. But I think he kind of did. Ended the, God, ended the book of Acts the same way. Why do we stand here looking at verse 31, wishing there was a verse 32? Men of sulfur, women of sulfur, why are you worried about what happens to Paul when the point, the purpose, is the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God? Why do you stand here wondering this when you have a mandate? The mandate was the point. Paul was not important here. The gospel was. Adrian Rogers said uh, in 87, 88, at the Southern Baptist Convention, he said as a part of his message that year, as they were attempting, and they were about halfway through making the Southern Baptist conversion, uh, Convention conservative again, getting back to the inerrancy of Scripture. And that was, that was the fight. There were a lot of other smaller fights. There were, there were a lot of power plays. There were a lot of ways that, they, that it was done, both good and not good. But the purpose 
uh, the whole time was to get the Southern Baptist Convention back to the inerrancy of Scripture. But Adrian Rogers said in his sermon, we don't have to get together. It's the best Adrian Rogers I can do, Mike, sorry. The Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of Bellevue. I don't have to live, but I'm not going to compromise the Word of God. It's a great quote. As a matter of fact, it is on a plaque outside of uh, Mrs. Rogers' home to this day because it is probably the, the greatest quote Adrian Rogers is known for. And he is right. At that time and today, the Southern Baptist Convention does not have to survive. What's important is the Word of God. That's what's important. Let me alter it a bit for Luke and, and, and for Paul, or rather for how Luke ended this, the, the, the book. He, he, he might have ended it this way. He might have said, Paul's trial doesn't matter. Rome doesn't have to survive. I don't have to be a part of the story I recorded. Luke, remember, interjects himself along, but not, not the whole thing. Paul doesn't have to live, Luke might say. But the church must not compromise the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. If he were taking Adrian's quote, that, that might be how he rephrased it to end Acts, to show us what we are supposed to do. I think as a church, we can make one more alteration of this for today. For the decisions that are in front of us, the decisions that are behind us, we might say, we don't have to come together as a church. First Baptist Sulphur doesn't have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of First Sulphur. I don't have to live. But the call to take the gospel to our Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth cannot be compromised. We are but a tool in the Lord's hands to do his work. And when the tool's worn out, we throw it away and get a tool that works better. We don't have to survive as a church. We don't have to exist as First Baptist Sulphur. I don't have to be your pastor. But none of that should ever, ever hinder, disrupt, distract, compromise the call to take the gospel to our community and the ends of the earth. Never, ever, ever. We have but one mandate, not to exist, not to do, not to maintain facilities, but to take the gospel to the world. That's the call we must be obedient to, no matter what other decisions are made in the short term or the long term. So what should I do? First, understand the ends of the earth is still our call. It has not changed. Acts 
chapter 28, verse 32, says, Church family of First Baptist Sulphur, the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth has not changed. Y'all might not have that verse in your Bible. It's not in mine either. If it'll help you remember, yes, ma'am, add that. And, and whatever church it is that comes to Acts 28.31, Acts 28.32 is the same. The call has not changed. So understand, that is our call. But people, people, folks, that's not our call. Okay? That's not the building's call. That's not the name on the sign's call. That's not the staff's call. That's not the deacon's call. That is your call. You are the church. Regardless of the name on the sign, regardless of the person who stands up here and preaches, you are the church, and the call is yours to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Be obedient to the call. What should I do? Number two, keep doing the last thing God said to do until he tells you to do something else. We're going way back to experiencing God in 2017, but we're bringing it forward you know why we learn things? To remember them. Keep doing the last thing God said to do until he tells you to do something else. What does that mean right now? I don't know. What I do know is that the call to reach the nations with the gospel has not changed. Has it, has it, does it, does the, the, the exterior change? Does the interior change? Does the, the name change? Does the leadership change? All those things change. But the call does not. So we are to keep doing the last thing God told the church to do, which was share the gospel with the, king, with the, the, the whole earth until he says do something different. You know when he's going to say do something different? When he says, church, come home. That'll be the different. There's no different till then. Number three, what do I need to do? Be obedient where you are, whether it's where you thought you'd be or not. Be obedient where you are, whether it's where you thought you'd be or not. Paul probably did not believe he would die in Rome. I believe up through those two years, he still thought he was going to go to Spain. Rome was not where he thought he would be for that long of a time. And while he was there, he was obedient to his call. For two years and longer, till the day they killed him, however they did it, he was obedient to his call. We see that in his letters to Philemon, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to Timothy, to Titus. He was faithful till the day he died. And then lastly, what should I do? Commit that no matter what other decisions must be made, you will never compromise the call to reach sulfur and the world for Jesus. What decision must I make? I don't know. But whatever that decision is, it has to be to fulfill the call to reach sulfur and the world for Jesus. What are we going to do next? I don't know. But whatever next is, it must never compromise the call to reach sulfur and the world for Jesus. 
Whatever decision is made tomorrow and the next day and next week and next month and next year, every decision must have in mind and as a purpose and as a determination that we as a church will reach sulfur and the world for Jesus. I think you've got some things to do based on that. That's what you should do. What you should do this morning also, if you're a believer, is thank God that your salvation and your eternity are secure. We worry about this virus, and and well, we should. We should be concerned for our loved ones that are most vulnerable to it. We should take all the steps necessary to protect them. But we can rejoice and be confident in the fact our salvation is secure no matter what happens. Whether it's the, the, the... COVID-19 virus of our day, whether it's the uh, nuclear bomb uh, era, nuclear era of C.S. Lewis's day, whether it's the Spanish flu after World War I, whether it's the Black Plague of Martin Luther's day, no matter what it is, we have confidence that our salvation and our, our eternity are secure. Our concern today should be for those that don't have that confidence, don't have that security. And maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and you don't have that confidence. You don't have that security. Your fear of the virus is not the fear of losing a loved one, not the fear of the illness that you would experience itself, but it's if something happens, I don't know what eternity holds for me. Today, you can get that straight. You can understand that God has a perfect plan. He had a perfect plan. He had a perfect design, and sin messed up that design. Our sin, you are sinful, I am sinful, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all mess up God's design, and it leads to brokenness. This virus is just one more way our world proves its brokenness. Just one more. Next month, there'll be something else. There's already been plenty of things in the past. It's just we live in a broken world, and it is brought on by our sin. And the only fix for the sin, as Tom beautifully prayed, the only inoculation we have for the, the virus of sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took your sin and you get, because he died on the cross for that sin, because he took the punishment, because he was buried, because he rose on the third day, you get a transfusion of his blood if you want to look at it that way. Not literally, don't go all saying, Michael's saying all sorts of weird things. It's It's a metaphor. You get a transfusion. You are inoculated. You are impervious to the eternal effects of the sin. You know what they tell you when you get a flu shot? Well, you, you know, you might get the flu, but it won't be as bad as it could have been. And for most of us, that's right. Sorry, Joe, that's not always the case. Joe's had it twice this year. Sin, the inoculation, the gospel does the same thing. We still suffer the, fe- the effects of sin on this earth. But the end result the consequences of that virus are taken away. It's not as bad as it could have been. Life isn't as bad as it could have been when we've trusted Christ. How do we absorb that gospel? How do we apply that gospel? How do we take that inoculation? We repent 
and believe. We turn from our sins and we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that his death, burial, and resurrection is enough, that faith in him is enough, and then we begin to recover and pursue God's design. We begin to live in a way that even in a broken, virus-filled, war-torn world, we see God's hand, his design, his plan, his will, and we get to rejoice that eternity is ours. And you can have that this morning. Be obedient to that call unbeliever. Make this your day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are king over everything. You're king over viruses. You are king over wars. You are king over earthquakes and storms. You are king over all the horrible stuff. But God, you are also king over the great things. You are provider of all blessings. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you. Lord, you, you hold it all. And most importantly, you hold your children through it all. So that we, whether we have been obedient in the past or not, whether we are living specific consequences for sin or not, we can still be obedient to our call today. We can still see you work. We can still do what you've called us to do. And Lord, we can, as unbelievers, if there's somebody listening, Lord, please draw them this morning. And may they respond. We can experience an eternity of of, of guaranteed life. An eternity with a promise of you because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Lord, I pray for obedience to that call from folks who've never trusted you. I pray this morning for an obedience to the call to win the nations from our church family who have known you, some for many, many years, decades. Others, just a couple of months, maybe. But the call's the same. May we, obe- may, may we be obedient to that call. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what decision do you need to make today? How should you respond? Maybe you need to accept Christ. Maybe you need to come forward and say, I want to be baptized. Maybe God's working on your heart in some way there. Maybe you want to come pray for our church. As I said, I don't overstate that we are at a crossroads, a pivotal crossroads of what's next in our church. And you want to come and pray for that and pray about how you can be obedient, how we as a church can be obedient to the call to share the gospel with sulfur and the world. That's our focus. That's our purpose. So we're going to take a couple of minutes and pray. Maybe you want to pray about this virus. Maybe you have loved ones you're concerned about. The chair rails, the prayer rails will be open for you. Tom will be to my right. I'll be to the left. We can pray with you if you'd like. I'm going to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask you to stand or kneel. Sit, stand, come down front, do something, change your position, and, and, and with your body, submit to prayer. And then Mindy will lead us in the song after a couple of minutes of prayer. Let's stand or sit and do business with God.